0: Welcome, my brothers and sisters in Christ. It is Good Friday, the day that our Lord Jesus died on a Roman cross on Golgotha, the hill known as the Skull, where Imperial Rome executed criminals and political dissidents. It appeared to be an ignominious end for the man from Nazareth who claimed to be the Son of God. Jesus had entered the city of Jerusalem just days before, hailed as the Messiah, a hero, with cries of, Hosanna, save us! while hundreds of people waved palm branches and laid their cloaks before the feet of the donkey he rode. Just last night, Jesus had eaten a Passover meal with his closest disciples in the upper room of a friend's home. He had said that he was leaving them, that they should eat and drink and remember him, that they should serve one another, that they should love one another as he had loved them. They didn't fully understand. Jesus was arrested after that as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Soldiers tipped off by Judas Iscariot, one of his most trusted disciples, grabbed Jesus as Judas kissed his cheek. He was dragged off to the Sanhedrin to be tried for blasphemy. These men, his council of holy men, feared Jesus and wished him gone. He had upset the status quo. He preached revolutionary ideas to the masses. They must be rid of him before they lost control. That is what they believed. Jesus was tried and sentenced to death. The Jewish leaders had to take him before the Roman governor to carry out the sentence of death. Pontius Pilate, also concerned about uprisings, but of the political kind, saw no harm in Jesus of Nazareth. He offered Barabbas, a convicted criminal, as a substitute for Jesus. But the crowd, whipped into a frenzy by the Sanhedrin, refused the substitution. They shouted, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus was led away to execution as Pilate symbolically washed his hands of the whole affair. Jesus was whipped, beaten, stripped, and a crown fashioned thorn branches was thrust down upon his scalp. He was marched through the streets of Jerusalem carrying the crossbeam of his own cross. The crowd lining the streets shouted and spit upon him yet he remained stoic in the face of the abuse. On Golgotha, he was nailed through the wrists and ankles to the cross, and it was lifted into place. A small group of his followers, John, Mary Magdalene, and a few other women stood nearby weeping. Jesus spoke just seven times during this ordeal. He prayed for mercy for those who surrounded him. He pardoned one of the two criminals who hung near him. He arranged for his mother Mary's care. He cried out to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He asked for a drink. He cried out that his work was done. And then he commended his spirit to God. That was all, it was over. Jesus, the hope for Messiah was dead. His body was taken down as the Sabbath drew near. Joseph of Arimathea claimed Jesus' body and placed it in an empty tomb. The heavy stone was rolled into place and the tomb was sealed. The disciples of Jesus gathered together in the upper room during that Sabbath. They were lost, uprooted, in despair. What were they to do now? How could this be happening? How are they to go on? This is the darkness of the night we face. We are lost today too. How do we face the world tomorrow? What are we going to do? How will we go on? Like the disciples so long ago, we falter in this time between times. The dawn will come, but will it bring hope or more despair? As Christians, we know that we have hope in the future, yet we still exist in this time between times. We have fear, regret, and even despair. What we do tomorrow and the next day and all of our days will help to shape that hopeful future. So tonight, we ponder. We feel the pain of loss. We hide away in anxiety. We wait for the dawn. I share with you now a prayer by Debbie McDaniel, posted on crosswalk.com. She prays so beautifully what is on my heart and probably yours tonight. Dear God, we remember today the pain and suffering of the cross and all that Jesus was willing to endure so that we could be set free. He paid the price, such a great sacrifice to offer us the gift of eternal life. Help us never to take for granted this huge gift of love on our behalf. Help us to be reminded of the cost of it all. Forgive us for being too busy or distracted by other things, for not fully recognizing what you have freely given, what you have done for us. Thank you, Lord, that by your wounds we are healed. Thank you that because of your huge sacrifice, we can live free. Thank you that sin and death have been conquered and that your power is everlasting. And thank you that we can say with great hope it is finished for we know what's still to come and death has lost its sting. We praise you for all you are making. We praise you for making all things new. In Jesus name. Amen. scripture lesson this evening is from John chapter 19 verses 38 to 42. After this, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate if he could take away the body of Jesus. Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one because he feared the Jewish authorities. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took the body away. Nicodemus, the one who at first had come to Jesus at night, was there too. He brought a mixture of myrrh and aloe, nearly 75 pounds in all. Following Jewish burial customs, they took Jesus' body and wrapped it with the spices in linen cloths. There was a garden in the place where Jesus was crucified, and in the garden was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish preparation day and the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus in it. We meet this evening, with the last person who gave something to Jesus during Holy Week. Joseph of Arimathea took Jesus from the cross and laid him in his own tomb. Let's meet Joseph now.
1: Welcome to my store. I'm Joseph of Arimathea. You're not interested in shopping today? No problem. Let's just sit and talk for a while. My shop's not busy and there's nothing I like better than telling others about my Lord. I haven't always been such a bold disciple of Jesus. My friend Mark says I boldly went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. But let me assure you, I was as frightened as anyone on that Friday when Jesus was crucified. As a matter of fact, even though I'm the one who's called bold, It was actually my colleague on the ruling council, Nicodemus, who was the bold one. He's the one you may think was cowardly because he came to see Jesus at night. But let me assure you, he was no coward. If anyone was cowardly, I was the one. At a time when all sorts of rumors were flying around about Jesus, it was Nicodemus who took action, not me. Some were calling Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. Others, my colleagues on the ruling council, the Sanhedrin, were saying Jesus was a charlatan and a liar. In the midst of this controversy, it was Nicodemus, not me, who decided to find out the truth. The best way to do that was simply talking to Jesus face to face. And that's what Nicodemus did one night after work. Honest and to the point, Nicodemus had said, Jesus, Rabbi, unless you are from God, you couldn't perform the miraculous signs you are doing. Jesus could tell Nicodemus was close to faith. Speaking directly to his heart, Jesus said, I tell you truthfully, No one will see the kingdom of God unless he is born again." Born again? Those were strange words, but not words of a maniac or enemy of God. The more I contemplated these words, the more truthful they seemed. I was certainly not pleased with myself. How I wish I could be born again. How I wished I could have have a new beginning in my life. Is that something you've ever wished? Hostility against Jesus grew with the Sanhedrin. Charges made in ignorance became more and more reckless. The temple guard was ordered to arrest Jesus, but after finding him and hearing him speak, they couldn't do it. No one ever spoke the way this man does, the commanding officer said to the council, trying to explain why he hadn't obeyed orders. How angry that made the Pharisees of the council. You mean he deceived you also? They replied. Has any of us, the rulers of the people, believed in him? I cringed silently. You see, though I was one of the rulers of the people and as well educated as any of them, I found myself more and more on Jesus' side. But afraid of public ridicule, I just hadn't told anyone. Does that sound like you? Are there times when you know you should speak up for Jesus, but in fear, you say nothing? Nicodemus spoke up. On the basis of a very law so dear to the Pharisees, he challenged them. Does our law judge a man without hearing him first? He asked. Though it was obviously a wise and reasonable word of caution, the other leaders simply ignored it. They argued that since Jesus was from Galilee, he couldn't possibly be a true prophet. To be the Christ, he'd have to come from Bethlehem. Case closed. What fools. Had it not occurred to any of them simply to ask where Jesus was born? That's the very question I should have asked at that moment. But no, I was afraid of them. I, a ruler of the people, and said nothing. Only Nicodemus had the courage to speak up in his defense of Jesus. How I wish that whole problem would simply go away, but it didn't. The whole city was dividing up into camps. Those who were ready to crown Jesus as king and those plotting to kill him. What side are you on, Joseph? My customers would ask as they came into the store. You're on the council, where do you stand? How would you answer an enemy of Jesus? I would stammer out a few non-committal words and then try and direct the customer's attention to a basket of almonds or a jar of oil I could sell them at a special price. But I knew in my heart that eventually I would have to take a position Meanwhile, I busied myself with my work and my family and made plans for my future. A man of my status and wealth needed to have a proper burial place. My father and many other relatives were buried in Arimathea, a town north of Jerusalem. But I set down roots here in the capital. My wife and sons and their wives and children would need a tomb. I located the perfect spot a garden on a rocky hillside just outside the city. It was near Jopa Road, so it would be easy for relatives to find. There was only one problem. It was near Golgotha, the place where Romans crucified criminals. Perhaps by the time I needed it, the Romans would be gone or they had found some other place to kill their prisoners. Our new family burial place was purchased. I hired stone cutters to carve out the burial chambers. To begin with, there would be just one small room, about six feet wide and nine feet long, just high enough to stand up in. The wall of this room, I had a niche prepared for myself. One day when I died, I would be given a fine funeral at my home. After a procession to the grave, my body would be wrapped with layers of cloth and spices then laid to rest in that very spot. An eloquent oration would be given. It had better be eloquent because I would be listening. And then the grave would be sealed. Later, as necessity dictated, the tomb could be opened and mournish could be carved into the rock. At this point, I had expected... Would be done. I had no way of knowing when I bought my tomb that its only occupant would be Jesus, the very one about whom I was too afraid to say a word. Nor could I have imagined that I, Silent Joseph, would soon be standing before the governor himself asking for the body of Jesus. The eve of Passover was upon us. Spies were constantly bringing new reports to the Sanhedrin about the activities and teachings of Jesus. A blind man had been healed. A dead man, Lazarus, whose home was just outside of Jerusalem in Bethany, had been raised to life. Jesus, without consulting the Sanhedrin or any of the priests, had thrown out the animal sellers and many uh, changers from the temple encounters with Pharisees and other leaders became more frequent. At first these meetings had been more like discussions and debates. Jesus would be asked questions such as, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Or, which is the greatest commandment? Or, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? And with great wisdom he'd answer. But before long the encounters became ugly confrontations. Jesus was accused of casting out demons by Beelzebub. Bil- 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 he was called a, Samar- a Samaritan by demon-possessed. Jesus would bes- respond by describing his enemies as whitewashed tombs, blind guides, children of the devil. In every contra- confrontation, Jesus was the obvious winner. But the leaders were unmoved, clearly Nothing would convince his enemies to believe him, not even the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Far from having a change of heart, most of my fellow counselors began to plot the murder of Jesus. As you can imagine, it became increasingly difficult for me to remain noncommittal and serve on the Sahedron. Almost daily, new charges were being raised against Jesus, and new strategies were being devised to arrest and kill him. It all came to a head on that first night of Passover. One of Jesus' disciples, Judas, had begun cooperating with the priests. Slipping away from the house where Jesus was celebrating the feast with his friends, Judas had come to the priests, telling them where they could find Jesus later that night. A posse was organized, more like a lynch mob, I would call it. Well before dawn on Friday, a small army of soldiers, officers, priests, and Pharisees descended on the quiet garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus was praying. Judas came with them, identifying Jesus with a deadly kiss. After a brief scuffle, scuffle between Peter and the slave Mothis, Jesus was led away. Several times that night, Jesus was tried. There were trials before the high priests Aeneas and Caiaphas. There were two trials before Pilate. There was even a trial before Herod. I heard each accusation that Jesus had threatened to destroy the temple, that he claimed to be Christ, that he called himself the Son of God, that he made himself out to be king in opposition to Caesar, that he opposed paying taxes that he was nothing but a troublemaker. All this I heard and yet said nothing in Jesus's defense, not even when he was mercilessly beaten and mocked. I knew where it was all leading to death by crucifixion. My heart told me to speak, but my tongue refused. Most of the charges were absurd, others were based on a deliberate misinterpretation of what Jesus taught. And some charges I had concluded were true. Jesus was, in truth, the Christ, the Son of God, the King of Israel. But if I spoke up in that den of hatred and violence, would I not be killed too? How frightened I was. Just before noon, Pilate made his decision. Jesus would die by crucifixion, even though he was guilty of nothing worthy of death. Faced with an impending riot and loss of his job, it seemed politically expedient thing for the governor to do. As I watched Jesus being mocked by the soldiers and whipped, I felt myself worse betrayer than Judas. Along with Two condemned thieves, accompanied by a crowd that both mourned him and scorned him, Jesus was led away by to Golgotha carrying his cross. In silent grief, I returned home to await the word of Jesus' death. There my heart agonized within me. Again and again I relived those moments when I could have said something on Jesus' behalf but didn't. Then something Jesus had said came to my mind ever confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father in heaven. I thought about my beautiful garden, too. Did I really want to go to the grave denying my Lord through my silence? No. It was too late to undo the past, but there was still time for me to speak up for my Savior. I would go to his cross and confess him there regardless what the other members of the council thought of me. Even if they expelled me and charged me with crimes of blasphemy, no more would I be silent. Hurrying from my home, I made my way through the city toward the north gate. It was just in the middle of the afternoon, but oddly, the crowds that had accompanied Jesus to Golgotha were returning. Did they not kill him after all? Had someone come forward at the last minute with proof of his innocence? Nicodemus, his face streaked with tears, walked slowly towards me. Nicodemus, tell me what happened. Jesus is dead, he replied matter-of-factly. Dead? Already? I asked incredulously, how can that be? The cross can take days. Surely, Jesus, surely you are wrong. Jesus is dead, Nicodemus replied. I saw him die. Why would you be concerned now? Never before have you seemed to care about Jesus. Nicodemus, I was wrong, I told him. I know I should have spoken out for him, but I was afraid. Surely he was the Messiah, the Son of God. Nicodemus, I failed him. Is there any hope for me? My eyes spoke with the sincerity of my words. After a long pause, Nicodemus answered, Brother Joseph, yes, there is forgiveness even for you. Before Jesus died, he asked God to forgive his enemies. He promised paradise to a dying thief. Yes, surely there is forgiveness even for you. Almost miraculously, I felt the burden of guilt lifted. What? What? "'Will they do with the body of Jesus?' I asked. "'Probably bury it in Potter's Field with the criminals and the poor and the foreigners,' Nicodemus answered. "'No, not that,' I cried. "'He could have my grave. "'I'll go to Pilate and ask for the body. "'You know what happened next.' "'Pilate released the body of Jesus to me after the centurion certified that Jesus was dead.' Just before sunset, Nicodemus and I carried the body of Jesus to my tomb. Gladly, I would give it to him. Together, we wrapped the body of Jesus in cloths and spices Nicodemus had brought and laid it in the place where I have lain. Mary Magdalene and Jesus' mother watched from a distance. Finishing hastily, we left the tomb, straining to roll the heavy stone against the doorway. There, it was done. Now there was no doubt what side I was on, or where my heart lay. The governor, Nicodemus, the Sanhedrin, the women, the disciples, they all knew Jesus was my Lord and Savior. Mark says I was bold. If it was, my boldness was simply that of a forgiven sinner confessing Jesus even when I was afraid. That was really my gift to Jesus. It can be yours too. Confessing him before others is far better gift than most costly tomb. And besides, he doesn't need one of these anymore.
0: Let us pray. Lord God, As we contemplate the great love of your Son that moved him to die publicly for unworthy sinners such as ourselves, move us publicly to acknowledge him as our Savior. Help us become, as Joseph of Arimathea became, bold to confess Jesus before men. In his name, amen. Sleep well tonight, my friends. I long for the time we can meet together again, but we do what we must to protect ourselves and each other so that we can continue to serve in Jesus' name. Please join me on Easter Sunday at 10 a.m. on our Portage Faith United Methodist Church Facebook page for a Facebook Live broadcast. We will be partaking of the Lord's Supper together, so have some bread and juice at your location and I will have some at mine and the Holy Spirit will bridge the distance between us. Until then, may God continue to bless you and keep you safe. I leave you with this poem by Jan L. Richardson as posted on thepaintedprayerbook.com Song of the Winding Sheet We never would have wished it to come to this, yet we call these moments holy as we hold you. Holy the tending, holy the winding, holy the leaving as in the living. Holy, the silence, holy, the stillness, holy, the turning and returning to earth. Blessed is the one who came in the name. Blessed is the one who laid himself down. Blessed is the one emptied for us. Blessed is the one wearing the shroud. Holy, the waiting, holy, the grieving, holy, the shadows and gathering night. Holy, the darkness, holy, the hours holy the hope, turning toward light. Amen. The monologue of Joseph Gives His Tomb is from the book The Gifts of Lent by Donald H. Nideck, CSS Publishing Company, Lime, Ohio, 1999.